Well, let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come again to your word, we acknowledge you as its author. The things that are written there are written for our instruction, our blessing, our encouragement, and to challenge us. Even history itself, which is your story. Guide us as we turn to this text now and lead us that we might also remember your King, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Have you caught up with the latest news in the royal family? Maybe that question brings one of three reactions. At one end of the spectrum, tell me more. At the other end of the spectrum, the response, I really don't care. In the middle, perhaps, a mild interest that is superficial at best. There are, of course, people who would take a great interest in all things royal, who would buy and read Prince Harry's book and would like to know the goss and have got their eyes upon the succession of the throne. Well, in the book of First Kings, that is definitely the question in our chapter this morning. We began this series on chapters 1 to 11 last week and noted the events that were unfolding in the royal palace. David was old and lay dying, and so his fourth son, Adonijah, grasped the opportunity to take the throne. I will be king, he said. He didn't wait until his dad had died. He didn't seem to have regard for the promise that David had given Bathsheba that Solomon would be king. No, he just went ahead and declared himself king, self-appointed. This was his opportunity, he probably reasoned, and so that's what he did. Now, there's a sense in which Adonijah's actions ought to have been of little consequence. We change our prime ministers in this country, don't we, from time to time, fairly regularly? But that wasn't the plan with the kings of Israel. God's plan had been spelled out long ago in some detail in this matter, and his plan was that the king would always be a type and a shadow of the one who was the true king who would come who would be Jesus. And so the position of king wasn't up for grabs just for anyone, even if you did belong to the royal family, like Adonijah may have thought to himself. In fact, by grasping the throne, he only succeeded at putting himself against God and God's succession plan. And when you put yourself against God... Well, the likely outcome is what? You lose. Last week when we looked at the first ten verses of chapter one, we saw the hour had come of David's decline and Adonijah's rise. This week the text brings us royal watchers that we are. More news about this attempted coup, taking us behind the scenes, taking us right into the bedchamber of the king himself. Not the throne room, but the bedchamber, the bedroom. 
and then to the public for comment. Detailing how certain kingdom-minded people were used to set things in motion that God's promised king would eventually be upon the throne. Three things to note this morning. First, let's note what took place behind the scenes with some royal cooperation in verses 11 to 26. Some royal cooperation. Among the various commentaries on this text, you'll find liberal and unbelieving ones who have a very unsympathetic reading of this text. They see David as being an impotent and dementia-ridden geriatric who's being manipulated by the wily Bathsheba and the conniving Nathan the prophet. They claim there are lies spoken to a man with no memory of promises he ever made to try and manoeuvre their choice of a certain man onto the throne that they wanted. But surely that's not the case, is it? Nathan and Bathsheba are on God's side. That is to say, on the side of seeing God's promise to Solomon fulfilled. Nathan is the key man here, for it's he, in verse 11, who goes to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, with the words, Have you not heard, there's that double negative, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, has become king, and David our Lord doesn't know it? Nathan is the prophet of the Lord at court. He is the man who hears from God, who directs the man, who gives directions because he speaks with God's authority so that even the king must obey what the prophet has said. Nathan has played a very important role so far in relation to the promises given to David and in particular to Solomon who will be king. It was Nathan who gave David the promise that his son would sit on the throne and rule over God's kingdom forever. It was Nathan who confronted David about his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. Then after David was restored, it was Nathan who spoke about Solomon being beloved of God, noting that it was probably this indication of favour towards Solomon which led David to make the oath to Bathsheba that Solomon would be the one to be the king. With all of this background to Nathan's knowledge of Solomon's choice, it's understandable that Nathan starts this movement, this instigation, instigating all of this. It also causes other things to stand out. It becomes a little bit more obvious why Solomon and Nathan were not invited to join Adonijah's king party. It helps us to see there would have been a clear understanding in Adonijah's mind that Solomon was next in line. And it highlights the sort of religion that Adonijah was indulging in. If you glance back at verse 9 you will see sacrifices and a priest, but no prophet. This describes a lot of religion of people in the world. It's not at all that the majority are irreligious or have no religion as they tick on the census form. It's rather that people have their own kind of religion, 
some self-made system in which God plays the part of an onlooker, giving his approval, or in which God has no part at all for his word is not consulted. It's religion without a prophet, devoid of any truth, self-made. I do what I, I do what I believe, and God has nothing to do with it. So here we see that Nathan, who is above all concerned to see God's will be done, makes a plan. We have to admit there is a plan here that Bathsheba and Nathan are combining to move David in a certain direction. But all their wisdom is not attempt to do getting him to do their will, but to do God's will. That's the difference, isn't it? Nathan's plan involves two witnesses informing David against his own son and the most trusted officials. It's a plan to impress the urgency of the moment and the need for action. He gets Bathsheba to go in first, as we see in verses 15 to 20. As she does that, notice that she's deferential and respectful of the king's authority, something Adonijah was not. And her appeal was to the fact of his vow that Solomon would be king and the fact that she and Solomon would likely face execution if David failed to act. Nathan comes in, verses 22 to 26, with the same story but with a difference where Bathsheba spoke to appeal to David's pity and Nathan stresses David's authority which had been undermined by Adonijah, by the repeated questioning, have you sanctioned this? Now what we see in Bathsheba and Nathan is a kingdom-mindedness that sets them apart. Not only do they show the right respect and deference to the king, but they show a desire to see what God had said and promised prevail over the will of others like Adonijah. And that's helpful, isn't it? When Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, what he meant is surely understood in the next phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This matter of praying for God's kingdom to come is not something beyond our reach and beyond ourselves. It's something we can contribute to by doing his will, by being a willing person to do his will. Nathan and Bathsheba go to David in earnest and without delay because they cannot abide God's will being resisted and his promises ignored. And they do this because this is what they can do. No matter that it's just the two of them who have this concern, no matter that they had to go in tandem, one after the other, both of them convinced of the promises of God and acted in the light of those promises, Solomon would be king. Let's get this right. Let's not be people who treat the promises of God as an opportunity to do nothing. Failing to recognise that God employs the means of our obedience 
to bring certain things to pass. For example, God has promised that every elect sheep will hear Jesus' voice, respond to his call and none of them will be snatched out of his hands and he will raise every one of them on the last day. These are certainly things we cannot do for him. That does not mean we have no part in the equation. God also commands us to repent and believe the gospel. He encourages us to share his word and sow his word like seed. He commands us to prayer and obedience and watchfulness. The promises of God are not seen as a reason for us to be lazy and inactive, but actually to do something, to go out in confidence because what we are doing is in line with his will and he will bring the results. We cannot delude ourselves and pretend that we are so great and that God needs us in order that his will be done. Rather, we recognise that he is the greatest of all and what a privilege that the God who can speak a universe into being has condescended to use us as his partners in bringing that word about. Nathan and Bathsheba didn't sit back and expect God to cause this to happen apart from their efforts. They made every effort to act. So whether we have a promise about being heard in prayer or being rewarded for persecution or our suffering being used for good, the promise did not lead us to be prayerless or faithless, but to faithful service. We should be encouraged by Nathan and Bathsheba One wife among David's many wives. One prophet among many prophets of the Lord. Used as instruments of God to progress his purposes. So there is hope, isn't there? That God would use his ordinary people as well. Second, let's note what happened in the public places as we see a royal coronation in verses 27 to 53. Now while the focus of the text has so far been upon Nathan and Bathsheba, now in these verses the focus shifts to David and to Solomon and then to Benaiah and Adonijah. Let's start with David. It's true the text doesn't reflect on him well. But now at least we can see him do something worthwhile. Instead of staying in bed, doing his very best to keep warm, David, though aged and infirm, can still do something. And he can do it quickly. For as soon as the matter becomes plain to him, explained to him, he acts in haste. He calls Bathsheba back to assure her by another oath that the previous promise he made about his, her son will be kept and kept promptly. Then he gathers his officials together to orchestrate the immediate crowning of Solomon. 
He gets the high priest, he gets the prophet, he gets the head of the king's bodyguards and his own personal representatives together to enact his plan as seen in verse 32. Solomon is to ride on David's personal donkey. Much like taking the Air Force One for the US president or whatever particular aeroplane our Prime Minister uses. What is he in America this morning? In his regular overseas trips. Then as David and Saul had been officially anointed with oil, Solomon was to be anointed king, followed by the formal proclamation by trumpet and chant and then in formal procession he is to take his place upon the throne The sequence is recorded three times for us. When David gives the instructions, 32 to 37. When it's executed, 38 to 40. When it's reported to Adonijah, 41 to 48. The retelling makes us feel there's an accumulation and a groundswell of support for Solomon as the rejoicing of the people was so loud it could have caused an earthquake. And when Adonijah is told, there is a great emphasis on the king's servants congratulating David and the report of David's own words of thanks that seal by royal approval and thanksgiving the rise of Solomon to the throne this day. And so the text turns to Solomon. And we're going to hear a lot about Solomon in these chapters. Not all of it will be good. But so far, seeing he's done nothing, his copybook is unblotted. So we say that it's all good at Solomon at the moment. For Solomon was a foreshadowing of the true King Jesus. Jesus himself made reference to that fact, didn't he? Announcing with his own arrival that something greater than Solomon was here. We also know that Solomon would be the one to rule and reign with wisdom, reminding us that as Jesus is king, he's all wise, he sits on the throne of David forever, he rules in perfection, he subdues all of God's enemies and causes true universal peace. And Solomon here, did you catch the glimmer of Jesus there? Comes riding in on a donkey. And we remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem before his death that he did just that. For his crowning glory, he came on a donkey. We also know that Solomon was anointed as king by a prophet and a priest. And with Jesus we note that John the Baptist was a prophet from a priest's family who anointed him at his baptism. Solomon was called beloved by God and so too was Jesus when the voice of God was heard at that baptism saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But there is another anointing, one that Solomon could not perform for Israel, which Jesus did for us. Jesus anointed for burial. Before Jesus the king could take up his throne, he first had to die for the sins of those 
who would be the living stones in the temple he was building. Jesus died the sinner's death. The king of the kingdom died for his subjects that they might live. And as Solomon was enthroned, so Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father and ruling from there until he comes again. See Solomon? See a picture of Jesus. Then thirdly, in the closing verses of the text, the scene changes from behind the scenes to out there in the public eye to two royal responses to the coronation of God's chosen king. The first response we note is from Benaiah in verses 36 to 37 where we're told, Benaiah said to the news, May the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. Benaiah is a man of faith. He has observed the faithfulness of God to David his master and prays an even greater blessing upon Solomon. This is not intended as an insult on David, but a prayer for the fulfilling of the promise given to David about a greater son coming in his wake. We see in Benaiah one who gladly accepts God's choice of king and pledges his allegiance to that king as is evidence in his prayer and his praise. Well, that's one response. But at the other end of the scale is, of course, Adonijah. He and his party hear the ruckus and wonder what is going on, only to be told the bad news for them that Solomon is king. The party is over. The champagne is put back in the bottle. And the guests slink away in fear. I hope nobody saw me at this celebration of Adonijah. (laughs) I hope no one saw me. Fearing they'll be counted as traitors and executed. And Adonijah knows this for himself. For he runs to the horns of the altar and holds on to these as a plea for mercy. You can't kill me. I plead for mercy. Now Solomon's likely feeling quite chuffed with himself and grants a reprieve. But how deep Adonijah's gratitude runs is going to be up for question. Although he bows before the new king, he does not bow in his heart. His is a false submission and so different to Benaiah's. And his response reminds us that there are all kinds of people who bow the knee to Jesus, who do not bow their hearts to Jesus. Maybe just to keep the peace. Maybe because they don't like the other consequences that would befall them. Maybe they give this kind of false worship to Jesus as a cover for their own greed and sin, which eventually is revealed. 
It certainly did with Adonijah. He's going to show his heart a bit later when at David's death he asks for David's concubine as an act of defiance. He says with his lips that he serves the king but he only serves himself. It's true of many who come to Christ who call him Lord, Lord. But as Jesus said, they don't do what I say. Where are you on that scale between Beniah and Adonijah? Are you glad that God's promised king, his beloved, has come and you're willing to be obedient to him, seeking his kingdom and serving him faithfully? Or are you like Adonijah? You don't want God's king to rule over you because you prefer Adonijah's aspect of life. I will be king. Giving an outward show of religion and allegiance to the king, but in your heart of hearts, you just want to be your own boss. Well, what we have in this first chapter, when we put all the parts together, is nothing new. It's happened in the past. It's happening now. And it will happen until the true king comes back. The tale of human history revolves around this central struggle in the text before us and the theme it traces. God has his king in mind. The one he promised from the moment, even before the moment mankind fell into sin. But the evil one has done his best. Next slide, please, Felicity. The evil one has done his best to propose counterfeits. Other men, often handsome men, well-spoken men, even educated men, who come along and promote themselves and say, I will be king. No wonder the Apostle John tells us that not only is the Antichrist coming, but he's already here. It's the devil's purpose to undo the plan of God, to dethrone the king of his choosing, to overthrow the will of God and put his person in his place so that he might rule, so that the devil might rule. In this case, see Adonijah's attempt to take the throne from Solomon. Is it just sibling rivalry? Or is it something that forms the whole story from Genesis to Revelation as another attempt to overthrow God's anointed? But it did not succeed. And it will not either. God says, Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that king is Jesus. And he is the ultimate royal, isn't he? And we should all be wanting news about him and gossiping 
about him because he is worth speaking about. Will you do that? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord and God, for your word. We thank you for this chapter of 1 Kings, this first chapter. We thank you for the king that you have installed, the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to respond rightly to him, not just with lip service, not just outwardly bowing the knee, but inwardly holding on to our own throne. Please help us to dethrone ourselves so that you might truly be the king that we so need to serve. Before you come in your glory and we are forced to bow the knee, We come with grateful thanks for this, that we can speak of him with confidence and surety and pray these things in his name. Amen.